So this morning, you're going to um, get two sermons, two mini-sermons, one mini-sermon, one two-thirds sermon. Um, I think it's right and appropriate to spend a little time talking about uh, an email that I sent out uh, this last week, uh, talking about a potential merger with Lentz Baptist Church. So Lentz Baptist Church uh, is a church that's about 100 years old, and it's down on uh, 92nd and Foster or so, and uh, they are also part of the same association we are, uh, which is CB Northwest, and we've, for the past six weeks or so, have been talking with their leadership team, and we've been praying and, and seeking, uh, maybe this is a potential merger opportunity for us as two churches. Uh, they have a facility that seats uh, about 500 people. Um, their church uh, has, uh, right now has about 30 members uh, and about 20 people in attendance. So um, the elders are asking the church to enter into uh, a time of fasting and praying together about this potential merger. And sort of the, the model or the impetus that we've been looking to in the scriptures is the church in Antioch. And the church in Antioch uh, is a really remarkable church. The church in Antioch is the first church where the gospel gets out to Gentiles. And up to the the time that you get to the church in Antioch, which is Acts chapter 11, the church is only in the city of Jerusalem. The the church is very, um, uh, it's very um, uh, ethnocentric. It's only Jewish people up to this point that have been converted. Uh, It's in a small region of sorts. Uh, There's the problems that they're dealing with um, are are, are problems of... um, that people that are all the same would deal with. There's not dealing with problems about when the gospel gets out. When the gospel gets out, that's when you get to questions like the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, when people that are different us get saved, right kinds of and messy kinds of controversies come to the church that are good and fun and healthy to deal with. There's just two points that I want to look at in the church in Acts as we think about a potential merger with Lentz Baptist Church. The church in Antioch Uh, like I said, up to this point, had been a church that was exclusively Jewish. And it also was a church in Jerusalem that was a very top-down church, okay? It was a church that was led by the apostles, which is a good thing. But we don't hear a lot about the kind of ministry that's taking place among the people in the church in Jerusalem. But we read in Acts chapter 11, the first time that we learn about the church in Antioch, you listen to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Look at what it says there. It says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. That's striking and remarkable. And what's striking about it is this is the first time, we don't even know who these people, these people's names are. They're just some people from Cyprus and Cyrene. They're ordinary people like you and me, okay? These aren't the big A apostles that brought the gospel to Antioch. The people that brought the gospel to Antioch were ordinary believers. They were ordinary men and women just like you and me. So the first thing that we see in the church in Antioch is the church in Antioch is not a church that's a top-down church. The church in Antioch is a church where the ministry of the church is embraced by everyone there. 
It's not just a ministry where the leaders are the ones that are doing the evangelism. It's not just a church where the leaders are uh, the ones that are getting the gospel out, but it's a church where everybody, everybody's embraced this call and this mission together to get the gospel out to the area and the region that they find themselves in. So it's a very um, leadership-scattered kind of church. It's a church where leaders delight to give ministry away. They delight to see people empowered. They delight to see people raised up and use their gifts. It's one thing that marks a church in Antioch. And it's important for us to realize that as we go into a potential merger with a church like Lentz Baptist Church, that all of us come together like a tapestry Each of us have gifts that God has given to each of us. And our job and our responsibility as a local church, if we come together with Lentz, is to hear from God what he has next for us. Because what the church in Antioch does in Acts chapter 13 is they fast and pray. They fast and pray and they say, what do you have next for us, Lord? And it's in this time of fasting and praying that the Holy Spirit speaks and says, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So as we enter into this time of fasting and praying together, the elders are asking all of us to commit to, to fasting uh, every other Wednesday for the next six Wednesdays. So the first one would be February 1st. But the second thing in thinking about the church in Antioch and its implications for us is that the church in Antioch became this ministry hub of sorts. Okay? It became this, uh, this sending church Commentators have suggested that as many as 50 different churches were planted in the region as a direct result of the church in Antioch. This church was a resourcing church. This church was an equipping church. This church was a place where leaders would come, would be trained, would be discipled, and would be sent out to go plant other churches who would have the DNA to plant other churches. So as we think about what our vision is as a local church, our vision is to celebrate and display the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And we do that in mission, family, and community. As we think about that, we ought also think how we can spread that vision for the supremacy of God, the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ being celebrated in churches around the city, around the greater Portland metro area, around the state, around this country, and around the world. And our vision ought be to be a church that can be a hub of ministry of sorts, A church where people can come and be trained, where disciples can be made, where church planting teams can be raised up and sent out. And in many ways, it delights uh, the elders to see the things that we've been successful at as a church. One thing that we've been successful in as a church is the ability to push ministry out. Because we've been pilgrims for so long, because we haven't had a church building, we haven't had a, uh, a meeting house of sorts, all of our ministry has been forced to be pushed out. And we think that way. We think about our community groups. We think about uh, ministering to our neighbors. We don't think building-centric, which is a really good thing. A lot of pastors and churches struggle with that, thinking that everything must flow through the church institution. We don't predominantly think that way, which which is a victory for us. And yet, a ministry hub then can now allow us to add that piece in as a local church. It's right that we started... uh, Uh, with a centrifugal kind of ministry being pushed out. It's right to get that DNA into us first. And now we have the opportunity, though, to be a church that also has a centripetal kind of ministry. A ministry where we are a hub church of sorts, where we can resource other churches, where people can come and be trained and embrace the gospel and be sent out to plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. 
That's what the church of Antioch became. And that's what the elders are asking us to fast and pray about. Is this what God has for us as a local church? Look, we are, as we went to spend the entire fall talking about, we're resident aliens, okay? We're constantly living on that knife's edge balance of the fact that we live here and this is not our home. It's a principle that Piper talks about. He says it's uh, planted versus pilgrim. On the one hand, we're pilgrims. Like, this is not our home. We're strangers and aliens to this place. And we ought always remember that in our thinking and in our strategizing and our thinking about how to get the gospel out, that we're, a, we're, a, we're a, a people that are moving constantly, not getting too comfortable where we are. And yet, there is a principle within the Christian faith of being planted, of establishing uh, a witness somewhere. The sense of building a local church that's here after long, long after all of us die. That this church would be here a hundred years from now. The gathering church a hundred years from now would be here because we planted. We put our feet down. We put roots down. We laid a foundation. And yet within that planted sort of uh, framework, we're also pilgrims. We're sending. We're equipping. We're resourcing. We're going. We're sending our best out to plant churches. We're sending our best out to, to lock now India. That's what the elders are asking us to fast and pray about. Our next meeting with the uh, leaders at Lentz Baptist Church is this coming Tuesday. This is coming Tuesday at 6 o'clock. And from our church, it'll be our elders, our deacons, uh, and some of our spouses. And from Lentz, it'll be their elders, uh, their deacon. They have three elders and one deacon uh, and a couple staff people. And we're asking the church to be praying for us that evening. Uh, And that night, I will write specific prayer points uh, for us to be praying and fasting for together on Wednesday morning. So when you wake up on Wednesday and don't eat breakfast, you can check your email and I'll have given us specific bullet points to pray about. Uh, Just some some feedback and some some outcomes from that meeting and also some specific things to pray about. And then on February 12th, uh, we have a member meeting and we can spend some extended time there dialoguing. Uh, We can ask questions. Obviously, you can come up to me or any of the elders or at any time and ask us any questions that you have. Uh, But let's let's plan on having a, a group discussion, a public discussion about it as we have a little bit more information when we get to February 12th. Okay? Okay. I just want to say, this, this is what I plan to say, and this is what I thought about saying five minutes ago, all that other, so. A couple more things I was going to say, I thought of five minutes ago, is that we've been here as a local church twice before, that we've had an opportunity to merge with another church twice before, and it didn't work out, okay? So there's a sense in which um, there's, a little bit of, uh, there's a little bit of fear of getting our hopes up too soon. Uh, There's the fear of not making the same mistake again. Uh, And yet, it does seem absolutely clear uh, to the elders in a unified way that this is the right door to be pushing on right now. Uh, We were, we did have a real estate broker that was looking at some other buildings for us. And we've said, let's let's not even pursue that right now. Because it just seems, what is clear to us is this is what God is asking us to be pushing on right now. It's asking us to be praying and to be talking with these leaders and to do so in a gracious and humble fashion. So, um, and the last thing I was going to say is just um, 
that it does delight me, I just want to emphasize this point, it does delight me and the elders that the DNA of our local church uh, is to think about ministry being pushed out. And our DNA and our culture is what we want to bring to Lentz Baptist Church. And when we get to Lentz Baptist Church, we don't want to just, when I share with the elders there, is we don't want to just sit on our hands for the next 30 years. We want to use the facility as an opportunity to mobilize greater and more ministry in the greater Portland-Vancouver area. Let's pray for that right now. Father, we're grateful for uh, this opportunity. We're grateful that you lead your people. Lord, we know, God, we know that you own everything. There's nothing in all of the created world that is not yours, God. And you could give us a building tomorrow if you wanted to, Lord. You could give us anything you wanted tomorrow. So we just entrust ourselves to your sovereign and providential purposes, Lord. We believe that you mean all things for the good of this church. You love this church, the gathering church, and Lentz Baptist Church infinitely more than we ever will. The scriptures tell us that you bought this church with your own blood. None of us ever died for this church, Lord. So we entrust ourselves to you. We entrust this church to you. We entrust Lentz Baptist Church to you. We pray, Lord, that if it's not right for us to merge with Lentz, we pray for their flourishing, Lord. We pray that the gospel witness would, uh, would stand in Lentz community because of Lentz Baptist Church. We pray that you would bring them the right leaders, Lord. We pray that the gospel would be embraced by the community uh, in that neighborhood, Lord. We're grateful, Lord. Uh, we long for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that we would be used uh, for your glory for that end. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So that was sermon number one. So if you turn to your Bibles, we're uh, going to continue our time now in the Gospel of Matthew. And we started a series last week uh, in the Gospel of Matthew where we uh, looked at the genealogy of Jesus Christ and we looked and we saw how even the genealogy of Jesus Christ is just dripping with God's grace for us. That God was using and working his sovereign purposes through broken circumstances, broken human beings, broken situations. And we said and we saw that in many ways the whole story of the Old Testament of God's grace towards us is found in that genealogy. God's faithfulness to his people Israel, that he would save and redeem a people for his glory, for his own sake, through this people Israel and through the nations That story is wrapped up in the first 17 verses of the book of Matthew in a genealogy where we see his faithfulness to us. We see his sovereign grace towards us. And this book, this gospel of Matthew, is all about how this King Jesus, the rightful, true King of Israel, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is bringing his reign and his rule to this earth. That all authority All power, all dominion belongs to him and he demands allegiance from every single human being on the face of this planet. And the Gospel of Matthew is all about how Jesus Christ is showing us his authority. He's showing us his power. He's showing us his reign and his kingship. He's showing us his sovereign grace towards sinners like you and me. And we're gonna spend the next several months, you know, we're just gonna go through this book. One pastor spent 89 sermons on the Gospel of Matthew. (laughs) We'll take breaks along the way, but we're going to go through this book. (laughs) Let's read the text this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she'd given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We pray, Lord, in these next few minutes that uh, your word would become alive and real to us, God. We pray, Lord, that um, the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ would be manifest in our heart because of the work of the Holy Spirit moving through the preaching of your word. We ask for your help, God, in Jesus' name, amen. So his name will be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So let's first look at the power of sin, the power of sin. C.S. Lewis said that fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. He's not just an imperfect creature that needs some kind of uh, improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. That's one way of defining what sin is defining sin as rebellion against something, namely against God and his rightful reign and authority in our lives. But there's another way that we can think about this idea of sin. And uh, there's a book that I was reading this last week in preparation for this sermon by um, a philosopher named Cornelius Plantinga. Um, And his book is called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And his understanding of sin goes something like this. This is a direct quote. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creature in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Think about that. Shalom or peace. We normally uh, think about it maybe in terms of calmness, but shalom is a much bigger idea than that in the scriptures. Shalom is everything set right as it ought to be. Everything functioning the way that it should be. And the scriptures give us a lot of different images for this, right? Particularly in the book of Isaiah and in the prophets, we have these different kinds of analogies that are given to us of what shalom looks like. Things like children laying down by, uh, by vipers. Things like... Uh, Uh, deer and lion dwelling together in harmony. The way things ought to be. Peace. Relationships functioning the way that they should. A way to think about sin, therefore, Plantinga says, is that it's a vandalism of shalom. Sin is a vandalism of shalom. Sin is bringing disorder, disharmony, disunity, lack of peace, the way things ought not to be. There's a sense that I think all of us have when we look at the world and we see the world as it is and we say, things aren't the way that they should be. 
In fact, I think that if we looked inside of ourselves, we looked inside of our own hearts, our own desires. One of my kids has to go to the bathroom, I think. (laughs) We look inside of our own hearts, our own desires. We see that things aren't the way they ought to be within ourselves. We think things that we ought not think. We have thoughts against people that we ought not have. You know, the apostle, Paul, he says, the saying is trustworthy, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief, of whom I am the foremost. Ever thought about that? Ever thought about that this is the apostle? This is the apostle, Paul, Okay, who's saying, I am the foremost of sinners in the world. I am the chief of sinners. There is not a greater sinner on the planet than me. On the one hand, he could be talking about his past life, right? Where he uh, was clearly condoning the persecution and the murder of Christians. But I think it's deeper than that. I think there's a sense in which we can say that about ourselves, I think there's a sense in which I can look at myself, I can look at my own heart, and I can look at each of you, and I can say, I am the biggest sinner in this room. And here's why. Because I know the depths of my own depravity more so than I know the depths of yours. I know what my heart is capable of in ways that I don't know what your heart is capable of. I know the thoughts that still come into my mind. Thoughts of malice, thoughts of hatred, thoughts of lust, thoughts of personal supremacy. And I see those things in my own heart and they're ugly and they're vile and I hate them. And I see them in ways that I don't see in your own heart, in your life. So I think in a very real way, I can see this lack of shalom, this vandalism of shalom in our own lives, in our own hearts. Can we say, can you say that the saying is trustworthy, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom you are the foremost? You know, some would say, I read something just this week. Um, A friend of mine that I went to high school with um, he, he's walked away from the Lord and um, he said that it is the most vile thing in the world to tell children that they're sinners. He said he could not think of a more awful thing to do than to tell a child he's a sinner. And I look at that statement and I think, I don't think there could be, on the one hand, certainly, by itself, you're just a sinner, you're, just, you're, you're, you're wicked, you're deplorable, certainly. But in the gospel is the height of spiritual and emotional health. To tell someone that you are, you are a broken human being. You are a sinner. And someday you will come to the point, by God's grace, to realize that you are a deeper sinner than you ever even realized. And yet, though, and simultaneously be told, you are so radically loved by the God of the universe that he would send his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, to live the life that you should have lived and die the death that you deserve to die so that you could be brought right into a relationship with God. You're so much more loved and cared for and adored than you ever dare believe. 
That, my friends, seems to be the height of spiritual and emotional health. To know and see the wickedness of our own hearts. To see the vandalism of shalom that sin has wreaked in our own lives. And yet to simultaneously know that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That is good news. Jesus, his name means God is salvation. God saves planting a, in talking about this idea of the vandalism of shalom. He talks, he's giving an extended illustration about the ways in which we even envy one another, the ways in which we want what other people have. He says, an envier doesn't care whether you earned part of your success or whether some golden parachute from heaven dropped it into your lap. To an envier, your advantage is totally unfair either way. In this respect, Enviers are theological switch hitters. Sometimes they are Pelagians, and other times they are Augustinians. But always they are potential killers. What they mean, what they mean is that at the heart of this vandalism of shalom is this, uh, this envy of sorts that doesn't care if someone worked as hard as they could for their opportunities or doesn't care if every opportunity was just dropped into someone's lap. It just wreaks havoc, wreaks havoc in our lives. But this book, this gospel of Matthew, is a story of God's kingdom coming to earth. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's God restoring shalom as it ought to be. It's relationships beginning to be restored, beginning to function the way that they ought to. Jesus says, we'll see in several months from now when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, just kidding, that we're made to be peacemakers. Blessed are those that keep peace, that bring shalom. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jonathan Edwards, in talking about heaven, he's talking about heaven where all of shalom is restored to the way it ought to be. All bitterness and malice and envy and strife will be gone from us. Shalom will be absolutely restored. Everything will be the way that it ought to be. We will no longer relate to our neighbor in an envious way. I will no longer want the gifts that my brother has. I'll delight to see what he has. It'll make me all the more happy to see the ways that he's successful. Edward says, all the members of this blessed society rejoice in each other's happiness. For the love of benevolence is perfect in them all. Everyone has not only a sincere, but a perfect goodwill to every other. Sincere and strong love is greatly gratified and delighted in, in the prosperity of the beloved object. And if the love be perfect, the greater the prosperity of the beloved is. And the more is the lover pleased and delighted for the prosperity of the beloved, as it were the food of love, and therefore the greater that prosperity and the more richly is love feasted. That's all to say. That's all to say that there's this absolute delight that we will have in one another when we're in that heavenly kingdom because heaven is a world of love. And when we see our brother, our sister successful or we see in them even a greater humility than we have, it will delight us to see a greater humility in them. And what Jesus is saying, Jesus is coming to restore shalom. He's coming to bring 
peace to the world. He's coming to bring his kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. A way to view sin is a vandalism of shalom and it's a refusal to accept the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's a refusal to accept his lordship, his sovereign authority in our lives. And there's two main ways that we primarily do this. We refuse his lordship in religious ways and we refuse his lordship in irreligious ways. The irreligious way, we talk about this all the time, but it's important to realize the ways in which we refuse his lordship. The irreligious way is obvious to us. The irreligious way is that we run from Christianity. We run from religion. We run from organized religion. And this is the way largely that the the world refuses Jesus' lordship. We make the rules for ourselves. We do what seems right to us. We live in an era where the height of human flourishing is to be able to do what you want to do. The height of human flourishing is to be exactly who you want to be. You realize that even this even manifests itself in the way that we recruit for the army these days. Remember what it was in the 50s? It was do the right thing. Duty, honor, country. What did it change to in the 90s? Be all you can be. <laughs> that was pretty good. <laughs> I didn't come up with it, sorry. It was Jamie Smith. <laughs> But it's a refusal. It's a refusal to accept any kind of uh, outside authority in our lives. But religious ways. There's religious ways also that we accept to receive the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our ways. There's religious ways. Right. We, we obey so that we might get. We treat God like a magic genie in the sky. We go through all the right motions so that at the end of the day, God is in our debt. We go to church, we raise our kids the way that we're supposed to, we homeschool them, we dress them a certain way, we don't let them listen to certain things, so that at the end of the day, God is in our debt. But the God of the Bible is not to be trifled with like that. The God of the Bible is not after just giving us good things, he's after giving us himself. And when our hearts are engaged in simply using God for the things that he has, loving God for his money, God won't have any part of it. It's a refusal to actually accept his lordship and his reign and his rule in our lives. And he'll have none of it. It's exactly what Jesus said to the, uh, those that had fallen to the other side of the lake after he'd multiplied the bread at the feeding of the 5,000. He said, you don't seek me. You had your fill, you're hungry. You just want me to be your genie maker God again. But Jesus Christ says to come to him, to come to him as true satisfier, true giver of living water, true giver of bread is the only way to come to him. And then and only then will our hearts be at rest, accept his true lordship, and then and only then will he be able to receive the life that he truly and actually offers to us. Well, let's move on to our Second and third point. The second, that was the power of sin. This is the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus. Sort of, look here at verse um, 21. She will, again, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, you ever realized who, uh, in a child's life, Okay, 
one of the marks, particularly in the ancient world, of authority was the ability and the right to name your child, okay? One of the marks of authority is the fact that you could name your child. And still today, I think there's, a, there's that, that symbolism in our thinking that we have authority over this child. This child belongs to us. This child is our responsibility. This child ought to listen to what we teach them and show them and so on. And yet when Mary and Joseph have a child, they don't even have that kind of authority over his life. Commentators note that this is, this is a striking example in the ancient world. That it's saying something about the nature of this baby, this, this baby that's in Mary's womb, at, that no one actually has authority over him. He's the one that has authority over everybody and everything. They don't even have the right to name him. They don't even have the right to name him. Because he's the one that has all authority in heaven and on earth. What they do have, though, what they do have, though, is they have the ability to trust, and they have the ability to obey. You know, commentators have called Joseph quiet Joseph for, uh, for centuries. And they call him quiet Joseph because, for one obvious reason, he doesn't speak, right? We don't have anything from Joseph uh, in the text uh, from Matthew. What we do have, though, is we see his responses to things. We see that his response is one of righteousness, and it's one to just simply obey. And Matthew, Matthew gives for us a picture of righteousness in a way that we don't normally, uh, I think, consider and think about. Because righteousness on the part of Joseph is not just personal impeccability. His righteousness is not just this desire to be personally um, impeccable, right? His righteousness, rather, is the way that he treats and honors another human being. Look at what he does to, uh, to his betrothed wife, Mary. It says that he p- desires to put her away quietly. He desires to do the right thing. He desires to preserve her honor as much as he can. He finds out, imagine the scene, he finds out he's betrothed this woman, she comes to him, she says, I'm pregnant. And his righteous act is not to just be seen as personally impeccable, but his righteousness, his righteous act is to cover her, is to bear on some degree her guilt. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, he says, substitutionary atonement is an ethical truth as much as it is a doctrinal truth. Substitutionary atonement is an ethical truth as much as it is a doctrinal truth, which means covering for somebody, an exquisite honor of another human being. And we see in Joseph, we see in Joseph this vertical and this horizontal kind of righteousness. The word of the Lord comes to him two different times, and he simply obeys. He simply hears it, and he radically obeys it. He believes the word of the Lord that comes to him. The word says, do not be afraid. Ever wondered why it said, do not be afraid? Because the fear, the fear of the social pressure, the social anxiety, raising this young man together with the constant social pressure that this woman got pregnant outside of wedlock, the fear of what his peers might think, the fear of raising a child in this kind of context. And yet he decides. He decides to simply believe the word of God and obey it. And he's blessed for it. He's blessed in the doing. He gives to us a definition of righteousness that goes beyond 
a personal impeccability. It gives us a definition of righteousness that shows how we ought relate to one another, even bearing one another's guilt. The last thing I want to look at here is the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus. You know, the early church, the early church was, uh, in the second and third century, was marked by a several different controversies that you could define um, in their understanding of this phrase, Jesus is Lord. So the early church was sort of in constant and three major controversies about the phrase, Jesus is Lord. And so the first controversy was, what does it mean for Jesus to be fully human? The second is, what does it mean for God and man to be one, is And then God, what does it mean for Jesus to be fully God? And these mark the early couple centuries of the church to define this phrase, to uphold the validity and to uphold the full doctrinal truth of Jesus being fully God. God and man being one together in the is, and God being fully, Jesus being fully God. And we see that right here at the beginning. It says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save their people from their sins. The verse right above that says, um, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Our brother Severin shared with us, this is the first time the Spirit comes on the stage for us in the New Testament. And the Spirit's job, the Spirit's work, is to make Jesus Christ human. To make the second person of the Trinity human. The virgin birth is Jesus becoming enfleshed. The Nicene Creed says it like this. It says, for us in our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. He became enfleshed, literally that says in the Greek. He took on human skin and that was only possible by no human agency. That was only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit alone. The Holy Spirit is what makes Jesus fleshly for us. It's what makes him like us. And it's the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that comes upon us at Pentecost so that Jesus Christ might be made real to the world around us. Jesus came into Mary and Joseph's life in the most radical of ways, right? Jesus came into their lives only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ comes into every single life in just a radical of fashion. Every conversion is a virgin birth. Every conversion is as radical as Jesus being enfleshed in Mary's womb as a two-celled organism. This is God incarnate. This is the, the second member of the Trinity taking on flesh and finding himself in a virgin's womb, a teenage girl's womb, coming in in the most radical and unexpected of circumstances. Jesus and the Spirit always come in in unexpected ways and unexpected times. This birth could have happened in another way. She could have have been found to be with child before she was betrothed to Joseph and saved Joseph this potential uh, disaster of sorts, this potential public backlash. But in God's sovereign and perfect timing, she's found to be with child while she is betrothed to Joseph. Because he means it for Joseph's good. He means it for Joseph's sovereign care. He means it for Joseph's joy in God and the faith. Jesus coming into his life 
in the most radical and unexpected of ways. And it's the same spirit, it's the same spirit now that lives in us, that dwells in us, that makes us to be his witnesses to Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And it's the same spirit that comes upon us that leads us and guides us into all truth as Jesus promised in the gospel of John. This power of Jesus, this power that was hovering over the face of the deep in Genesis chapter one, this power of the Holy Spirit that causes this young girl to conceive and have the maker of the universe in her belly is nothing less than the same spirit of God that brings Jesus Christ to you in his sovereign and gracious loving care in your life. Let me close with this. There's two names that Jesus, that Matthew gives us here for Jesus. And the one name that he gives us is that he is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. We, my friends, are in desperate need of shalom to be restored to our life. We're in desperate need for relationships to be restored in our life. We're in desperate need for our relationship with God to be restored. And Jesus Christ is the one that saves us. He is God who saves. But the second thing is Jesus has two names for us. His name will be Emmanuel, for he is God with us. He's God with us. The very last words in Matthew's gospel to us is that he is with us even to the end of the age. This doctrine of the incarnation of the Son of God who is always with us ought to bring us great hope. Because as we read this morning, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. You realize what that means that God became a man? That he's able to... Um, He's able to commiserate. He's able to have compassion on us in every way. It means that he knows what it's like to be a five-year-old. I was telling my kids this the other day. He knows what it's like to be a 10-year-old. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood. He knows what it's like to be a teenager. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be, experience um, being rejected. He knows what it's like to experience being misunderstood. He knows what it's like for people to reject him, to envy him. He knows what it's like. And he became a man so that he would not be ashamed of us. He became a man so that he might commiserate with us in ways that he could not otherwise have if he'd not taken on our frame and our form. He knows what it's like. In a moment, we're going to sing um, our, probably our last Christmas carol until next November. It's one of the reasons that we went to the Gospel of Matthew in January. It's just because I'm trying to keep Christmas going, <laughs> doing my part. But we're going to sing, he knows our need. To our weakness, he is no stranger. Behold your king. He knows our need, and to our weakness, he is no stranger, my friends. This text and this doctrine impart to us the radical, gracious mystery of the incarnation of the Son of God, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is fully man. And he is fully God. 
The Spirit's work was to bring him and make him enfleshed, and now that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, it's the Spirit that now testifies that he's Lord over all. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for your word to us. Lord, we pray now that as we come to the Lord's table, we come and sing this last song, that it would bear down in our heart the reality of the incarnation of the Son of God, that you know our weakness, you know our frame, and you've come to give us peace, you've come to give us hope, you've come to restore us the way things ought to be, Lord. And the only pathway, the only thing we need to do is to repent and turn to you in faith and trust. So we ask for your help to do that, that we would turn to you now as we come to the table and we would lay hold of all that you have for us by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.